going to begin a sermon series in Jonah. And I haven't had a chance to say this yet in the service, but oh my goodness, is it nice to worship with you guys again. Ah, oh, it's just refreshing. It's good to be back. We actually started together when I came seven years ago in the book of Jonah. And we, I don't know, most of you probably weren't here at that time, so most of you don't remember it. So I am, I am violating a cardinal rule of preaching. Somebody said sometime that you're not supposed to repeat texts within 15 years of each other, right? But we don't listen to those people anyway. And some of us haven't gone through Jonah, and this is a delightful, fun little book, at least because it matches my sense of humor and that it gets really sarcastic sometimes. So we're going to spend four or five weeks in the book of Jonah together. This morning, however, is an introduction sermon. So we're going to read the beginning of Jonah, and then we're going to talk about some things that lead us into this book. And the service is running long today, so don't worry about that. We'll start Christian formation maybe about 11.30. We'll give you enough time to have a little fellowship after the service. Right? So the sermon should be done within an hour, so don't, don't feel like, you know, we're pushing the clock. We're not in any hurry today. Here's the word of the Lord. The beginning of the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray what we just read. We pray that the reality that Jesus Christ is your lamb, that what we just sang, that Jesus Christ has saved us, that eventually we will be with each other and sin no more, that by his wounds we are healed, that all of that that makes us yours that we would hear and see this through your text this morning, that our hearts would be enlivened with the light of your redeeming love for us, and that this would then cause us to live such lives that others see and hear Christ and come to faith in him because we're here now. Do this among us. We can't do this for ourselves, but we can do it with the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Sometimes things in the world that we live in are just broken. Sometimes things on this side of the new heavens and the new earth that we look forward to are just muck and yuck. And everyday life in exile becomes so normal that we actually forget how ugly life can be. Consider, for example, a particular part of broken life in this world that's become normal to us, I think, by being so pervasive. How many of us know somebody whose life has been changed by divorce? I don't have to show hands, but I'll bet it would be pretty much all of us. By the destruction, by the dissolution of a marriage. Maybe it would be easier to say, does anybody not know somebody who's been affected by divorce? or bring the circle in just a little bit, make it a little more personal. How many of us have been personally affected, hurt, harmed by divorce, by the end of somebody's marriage, or right, be right at the doorstep, how many of us have been in our own family where there was divorce, the marriage ended and was ripped apart? Sometimes things in the broken world that we live in become so normal to us 
because they're so pervasive, we forget just how bad they are. One more question. How many of us know somebody or we're in a family where divorce happened because of adultery? Because the marriage covenant was broken at its most fundamental relational level. When there is divorce, there is always covenant breaking of some kind. At least one party breaks the covenant. And that can be done in more than one way. But it seems like covenant breaking in adultery causes the most carnage. That hits home for me, the person I love most in the world, my wife. Her family was torn apart by adultery when she was in elementary school. She's lived through divorce. She knows what it's like. I have friends who used to be pastors who ended their ministries and ended their marriages by adultery. Divorce hits home for many of us. I don't think any of us probably don't know someone not affected by it. It's one of the broken things in the world that we sometimes have come to take for granted and forgotten how ugly they are. And at this point, you might be asking, what does this have to do with Jonah exactly? Right question. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, so here's the answer to your question. What does this have to do with Jonah? Look at the very first word of the very first verse that we just read. In ESV, it's translated, now. But we don't want to overlook that little word. It's translating actually just one little letter in Hebrew. It's a prefix. It goes on the beginning of words, and it's a conjunction. It joins words and phrases and clauses together. If you remember conjunction, junction, right? This is one of those. It's a little letter called the Vav, and it goes on the beginning of a word in Hebrew, and it means and, or something like that. ESV translates it well as now. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What does that sound like when you slow down and read it and listen to it? If the book of Jonah begins with and, and now the word of the Lord, what, what does that imply? Well, it means it's not the beginning of the story, doesn't it? It means it's continuing. It means there's been something going on before. And Jonah's picking up on it and continuing it. Right? These other things have happened. And now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. It's just like the books in the Pentateuch. They work the same way. Genesis starts off the Bible. And then Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers all start with the same letter in Hebrew. They all start with and. Exodus is not the beginning of the story. And after Genesis... And then Leviticus, and after Exodus, and, and Numbers, and after... So these, they're continuing a story that already started, which means they all go together. Jonah's working the same way. It starts with and. We don't want to miss that, because it relates a bit to divorce. So as we begin our short sermon series on Jonah this week, I want to say there are two things we need to know about Jonah as we start off. And then we're going to come back and answer this question more. Two things you need to know about Jonah before we even begin. Here they are. Two key things. Numero uno. With no apologies to badly written children's Sunday school curriculum and with less apologies than none to Veggie Tales. The book of Jonah is not about a fish. That's the first thing you need to know. It is not about a fish. 
The fish is just a bit player, right? It's a little small character in the story. To say Jonah is about a fish is kind of looking at my favorite musical, Les Miserables, right? And the grand story of Les Miserables and saying, yeah, that's a story about the factory manager. Right, the guy at the very beginning of the story or close, he kicks Fontaine out. He fires her so Fontaine's out on the street. That guy. Well, he's important. He, what he does pivots the entire rest of the story in a really critical way. But it's not about him. Right? He just shows up in one scene. He has about three things that he sings, and then he's done. So saying Jonah is about a fish makes about as much sense and is as poor a reading, frankly, as saying Les Miserables is about the factory manager. Right? Les Miserables is about something completely different. It's about redeeming love, actually. Jonah's not about a fish. That's the first thing we need to know. It's about something else. And second, Jonah is not a standalone story. And this is where we'll spend most of the rest of our, of our time this morning. Jonah's not a standalone story. Though that's how it's regularly treated, that is also a reading mistake. It starts with the word and. It's a complete story. That is true enough. Jonah is a complete story. It follows a whole narrative arc from beginning to end, and it, and it has a completion. But it's also part of a bigger story. It's part of a larger tale. And here's how this fits together. The larger story that Jonah is part of is a story that starts with adultery and impending divorce. That's where Jonah is situated. If you're familiar with the book of Jonah or you've been in it before, maybe you'll look at it a little bit differently by the time that we finish. Because it's not a story about a fish, but it is part of a story about betrayal and adultery and divorce. That's why it starts with, and now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Because it's part of the twelve. The twelve we're calling here 12 books that comprise what we sometimes call in English the minor prophets. The minor prophets in your English Bible, they're right at the end of the Old Testament. They come right before Matthew. And they're called minor because they're all shorter, right? Take Jonah and compare it to Isaiah, right? You can read one fairly quickly and the other one is a project. Right? Jonah is a lot shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. So we call each of these books of the Minor prophets, minor because they're short, not because they're not important. But in Hebrew tradition, they are actually put together in a single book, which is called the Twelve. And together, they're actually the same length, more or less, as the other three major prophets. So we actually have four prophets of the same length, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. And Jonah's just one coherent story in the middle of a larger book grouped together so that if you read them in order, you're going to find that the 12 has a theology. It has a tale. It has a story it tells from the beginning to the end. It goes from Hosea to Malachi if you read them in order and intentionally connect them together, which means Jonah has a context, doesn't it? Jonah has a context. It goes with the books around it. So if we want to hear Jonah's story fully, we need to hear the story of the 12 of which it is part. So that's what we're doing this morning. The introductory sermon to the Jonah series, we're going to hear the story of the Twelve briefly to help us hear the story and the message of Jonah in the coming weeks. There are several different ways we can do this. 
We're going to do it the same way we've done it in Psalms. The concept is the same. If you've been around for Psalms, you'll maybe recognize some of this. What's going on here is a similar phenomenon. A lot of us are used to treating Psalms as a bunch of individual poems kind of collected into an anthology, right? That's not what Psalms is. Psalms is a book of poetry, 150 chapters that tells a story that has a theology that builds a message that goes from chapter 1 to chapter 150 and is intended to be read in order on purpose so you hear the message of the book of Psalms. And if you want to know what the message of Psalms is, the easiest way to do it in an overview is to read Psalms 1 and 2, which are the introduction, and Psalms 146 through 150, which are the conclusion. So here's where we start, here's where we end, and you can kind of use your, your Bible knowledge and your intelligence to draw a line between the two. Here's kind of the message of the story of the book of Psalms. Does that make sense? So that's how we hear Psalms. So that's how we're going to approach the 12. We're going to look at the introduction and the conclusion to the book of the 12, the minor prophets. Hosea 1 through 3 is the introduction. Here's where the themes and the theology start. The story starts here. Malachi is the conclusion. Here's where it lands. So we're going to look at the beginning and the end of the 12 to see what they're about. And we've already given you our hint for where the story starts. It starts with adultery. It starts with impending divorce, something that all of us are familiar with and many of us have experienced firsthand. It starts with relational betrayal and covenant breaking at the deepest level and of the most damaging kind. It starts with brokenness and carnage and pain. We're not going to be able to read all of Hosea 1 through 3 together. I would encourage you to do that later this afternoon. We're going to turn, if you'd turn there with me, we're going to read a few selected passages. We're going to begin at the beginning of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 2. It's going to sound a lot like, actually, the beginning of Jonah. It sets the scene for us, and it says this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And yes, you heard that right. Hosea's prophetic ministry begins by marrying a prostitute. Exactly as God told him to do. God says it, Hosea does it. Right? Jonah might start a little differently than that, but we'll find out next week. God says it, Hosea does it. Go marry a prostitute. Because Hosea's life, Hosea's own marriage, is a figure or we could call it a type. It's a reflection of and points to the way God's people are relating to him. This was one of your reflection questions you got in your Friday email to help you prepare for the service. Reflect on how Gomer the prostitute represents us in this story and how Hosea represents God in this story. So Hosea marries a prostitute because God is married to a prostitute. Hosea marries a real life woman named Gomer. God is married to real-life people whom he has chosen and saved by the death of the firstborn son and the blood of the lamb out of Egypt and brought them to be his own, to live with him for worship and blessing, a people whom he loves passionately in his chesed, his faithful, fierce, fiery covenant love, a people who committed adultery by committing idolatry. Israel has committed adultery by committing idolatry. Those two sins often go together, covenant-breaking 
in the Old Testament, adultery being a way of looking at idolatry. When God's people turn away from him to false gods, they break their covenant vows to him. It's like if you take God's people as the wife or the bride, and God as the husband in the marriage metaphor, which is going on here, it's like Israel or God's people have fallen in love with another husband, like they're having an affair. They've decided satisfaction and security and significance will be found outside of their husband Yahweh's chesed, covenant love for them. They are, for all intents and purposes, committing adultery with their idolatry. So Hosea's relationship with his wife and God's relationship with his people run parallel. And the first one figures or points to the second one. Both Hosea and God are married to a prostitute, a whore who's sleeping around, who thinks she can be satisfied and find security and have significance if she just has another man who's not her husband. But that doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy her. So she has another man and another man and another man over and over, just like a prostitute. Just like us. Just like us. Running to sin, to false gods, looking for security, for significance, for satisfaction from someone other than the God who has loved us in Christ. Just like us. Before you look at the speck in Gomer's eye and judge her, before you look at that moat in Israel's eye and judge them, go look in the mirror at the log in yours. Just like us. The story of the Twelve starts with adultery, betrayal, carnage, pain, and impending divorce. As we keep reading, Hosea and Gomer have three children together, and each of them gets a name that goes with this metaphor, the figure that's going on, of the reality of the people's adultery and idolatry. The first one is Jezreel, a name that predicts God's coming judgment on his people for their sin. Maybe a comparable name would be if you named your firstborn child like Brimstone or something like that, right? Gomorrah. That's the idea. It's a name that symbolizes judgment. The second name, Lo Ruchamah, means not loved because God is withdrawing his chesed from his people. And their third child, their third child is named Lo Ami. Their sin, their idolatry, their adultery, their covenant breaking is so heinous to God that divorce is coming. Lo ami means not my people. And as we reach verse 9 in chapter 1, at this point our Hebrew Bibles and our English Bibles are just a little bit different. And they're different in a way that I think matters. In our English Bibles, chapter 1 keeps going, doesn't it, for a couple more verses. In the Hebrew, the people who versified it and said, here are where the passages end, they stopped right here 
at this verse. And I think there's a reason for that, that they want us to see. Ending chapter 1 at verse 9 gives a different kind of rhetorical punch to this text because of the way verse 9 ends. I want to read it together. And I don't want to go too quickly, and I want you to listen really carefully to the language because you can see the wordplay that's going on in Hebrew and English also if you're paying attention. And the Lord said, so capital L-O-R-D, right? That's his covenant name, Yahweh. It means I am. That's his name. And the Lord said, call his name, the child's name, not my people. For you are not my people. And now watch this carefully. I am not your God. There's a subtle wordplay going on in the Hebrew that comes across into English if you're listening for it. What is God's proper name? Yahweh, which usually comes across in English as I am. Remember how is this presented in Exodus? We've talked about these verbs before. In Exodus 2 and 3, there are five verbs that go with the proper name of God as it's revealed to Moses that fill out the what does I am mean? God is saying, well, here's what I am means. And here are the five verbs. I am the God who hears the cries of my people in the land of slavery. That's who I am to you. I am the God who sees the suffering of my people as they're under the thumb of that which is keeping them enslaved. That's the kind of God I am to you. I am the God who remembers my covenant promises because I always keep them. That's the kind of God I am to you. Hears, sees, remembers. I am the God who knows, in Hebrew, a personal, experiential. Adam knew his wife. And she conceived, kind of word, the I've come down and I've walked in your shoes and I've been among you. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. I am the God who knows what it's like to be where you live. That's who I am to you. And then the last verb is, I am the God who delivers my people from the land of sin and death to the land of blessing and life by the blood of the lamb and the death of the firstborn son. That's who I am to you. I am the God who hears and sees and remembers and knows and delivers. This is what the Hebrew text does then with his name. And then it stops and sets the microphone down and walks away. I am not your God. And we need to sit and feel the impact of that. The depth of God's hatred of our sin. The beauty and the purity of God's absolute holiness. The horror and the betrayal and the hopelessness of our helpless condition without hope, without God in the world. Cut off from the only one who could ever love people as unlovely as we are. Cut off from the only one who hears, the only one who sees, the only one who will remember and know and deliver. I am not your God means all hope is lost. So just sit and look at what you have done on purpose with willful intent to your marriage, your relationship with God. It is so vile. God is ready for divorce. It's done. 
it's over. And that means you and I can just go to hell. Not loved. Not my people. That's where the story of the twelve starts. But it's not where it ends. It's not where it ends. And it doesn't end in a different spot because we clean ourselves up and then earn God's love back somehow. There is nothing we can do to undo our covenant breaking. Nothing. There is no way we can erase our adultery. It's impossible. The penalty for our sin is death, and it cannot be paid unless someone dies. So the only thing we can do is pay that death and go to hell forever. It's the only way it happens because God is so disgusted and fed up with our adultery and our sin to say, I am not your God. But that is not where he lets it end to keep reading. We're not done with the introduction yet. Chapter 2. You'll see God disciplining his people because he loves them. He's going to let them experience the full depravity and filth and disgust of their own sin and then bring it to his end. And in chapter 2, God is going to take his prostitute wife and buy her back to himself in redeeming love. You are chosen. You are royal. You are holy. You are mine. You're mine. And nothing you can do will change that. Chapter 2 is bounded at each end by two statements that go together as an inclusio. Read the beginning of chapter 2. It might be the end of chapter 1 in your Bible. Say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. God is taking the condition of man in our natural state and turning it on its head. He's completely reversing what's going on with his people, and he's the one who's doing it. Look at the end of chapter 2 and verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And then hear the echoing cry back, and they will say, you are my God. That is a reconciled marriage. And that in microcosm is the story of the twelve of the minor prophets. The sin and the idolatry and the adultery and the failure of God's people is hit head on and run completely over and killed by the unrelenting, faithful, fiery, covenant love and devotion of God for his people. And as God exercises his chesed to buy them back, God's people are undone. And they respond to the chesed love of God by saying, you are my husband and nobody else. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and everything that you are. And that becomes the cry of the people of God. Because just like he saved them from Egypt the first time, he's now buying them back again in a story of redeeming love a second time, bringing them back from exile that they're in because of their sin. Because God loved us first, we say, you are my God. The story of the 12 is the story of the redeeming love of God in Christ for his people. Right? And then your next question is to be, well, how does that work? 
How does God do that? Hosea chapter 3 gives us the snapshot, the beginning. How does God's chesed deal with our sin? Here's the big idea. Just as Hosea's message to Gomer continues to parallel God's marriage to his own people, in five verses, Hosea goes and he has to buy Gomer back from prostitution. He has to pay a redemption price. That's the word, it's redemption. He buys her back. He pays the debt that she owes for her, that she cannot pay herself so that she can be his again. And so God is going to pay a price to save his people from their sin. He's going to pay a redemption price. He's going to come and buy them back to himself. The penalty of sin is going to be paid, but not by the people. It will be paid by the husband. It will be paid by God so that you are my people because echoed back with you are our God. And that becomes reality forever. Now, how does that happen is the next question. What are the specifics about how the purchase comes? Well, that's the story of the 12, right? We're just at the beginning. So I guess you'll have to keep reading the thing to find out how that happens. That's the story of the book of the 12. It's a story of redeeming love. And Jonah tells part of that story. It's not a story about a fish. It's a story about chesed. It's a story about redeeming love of God for people who are his enemies. And he goes and gets them and buys them back. That's how it starts. Let's look at how it ends really briefly. One more place in the 12. We said Malachi is kind of the end. Hosea 1 through 3, start, launch our trajectory. Malachi is where the story lands. And it actually uses the same themes of human marriage and divorce and faithfulness and faithfulness that Hosea does. I'm going to read you just a couple of verses from Malachi. I'm in chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 14, where we see the same kind of figuring going on about marriage. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you, he's speaking to the people, to whom you have been faithless, though she's your companion, your wife by covenant, didn't he make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was it God was asking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. Again, adultery and idolatry, and they're headed toward divorce. It's the same kind of thing going on again in Malachi. What does God do in Malachi? Chapter 3 says this. Behold... I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. God is sending someone to do the buying back, to bring people back to his covenant. Who's the messenger of the covenant Malachi 3 is talking about? Well, if we're not sure, we can ask someone else. The Gospel of Mark thinks it knows because it quotes this verse right at the beginning and it quotes Isaiah 40 and it quotes Exodus 23 and it says all of this together, it says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Mark looks at this and says, oh, I know who we're talking about here. This is where the gospel starts. The story of the 12 is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like the story of Isaiah is and the story of Exodus is and the story of the Old Testament is the beginning of the gospel. That's whose story this is. So if we want to look at Hosea through Malachi, listening to the gospel of Mark saying, this is a story about the Redeemer coming. His name is Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. We can follow theologians Paul House and Paul Reddit. They're whom I follow. And a structure for the 12. If you want to read this later on your own, here's the trajectory. From the beginning to the end, they think it starts with warning, it moves through punishment to sin, and then ends in restoration and renewal. Warning about sin, punishment for sin, so God's people repent, and then restoration and renewal at the end. So they would construe it this way. The beginning, Hosea, Joel, Amos, that's more warning. Right? Then we move into punishment, mostly for Judah, but for others, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Then we move into punishment for the nations, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And then we end in restoration and renewal in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Here's one more big picture comment on the restoration part. When we get to restoration in Haggai, there's a new temple that's been built. In Zechariah, there's a new high priest who's come, who's working in that temple for atonement of sin. And in Malachi, by the time we get to the end, there's, not, there's a new people. Because when God's reconciling his people to himself, when he's restoring them in a new temple with a new priest, it's not just ethnic Israel. The nations are coming in too. And we have Jews and Gentiles, those who are near and those who are far, both being reconciled to God through the work of one priest in one temple as one people of God by the end of the book of the Twelve. That's kind of interesting. I think that sounds like another story I've heard. Well, Mark does too. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the story of the 12. It's a beautiful thing, but you have to read them all together as a book to see the thread as it goes through it. Redeeming love is the story of the 12. Now I want to zoom in. We're going to do two more things. As we conclude today, we're going to zoom in on Jonah just a little bit more to get ready for next week, and we're going to talk about our commission from this text. So where does Jonah come, right? When you're flipping through it, where's Jonah in the book of the 12? So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, there he is. He's number five, right in that middle part where we're going from warning to punishment. Though Jonah has kind of both a bit. And it follows Obadiah. And that is interesting. A friend of mine once wrote a song called Obadiah. And the first lyric started, I'm down on my knees. I don't understand what you're saying. That was his first line about the book of Obadiah. Well, <laughs> understandable. Here's what I think Obadiah is talking about. It's talking about Edom and how Edom has rebelled against God and is rejoicing over punishment and destruction as God's punishment of Israel comes down on them for their sins. And Israel's like, oh, that sounds like fun. Let's pile on. Let's get Israel. Dogpile. And Edom is rejoicing and helping Israel be miserable. They're attacking them and they're harming them. So God's going to deal with Edom as well. That's not okay with him, that they pile on top of his people. That's Obadiah. Here's how that leads into Jonah. Ready? In Hebrew, Edom is a word play. There's tons of word plays in the 12. It's a word play. Edom, you can hear it in English, sounds all, and looks almost exactly like Adam. Edom, Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for man or mankind. And in Obadiah, Edom stands for, like Hosea's marriage stands for God's relationship with his people, Edom stands for all of mankind. 
All of mankind is in rebellion against God. Right? No more God. No more Messiah. It's Psalms 2 going on in the middle of the minor prophets. The nations are raging. The people's applauding. The kings of the earth are taking their stand against God and against his Messiah. So how does God deal with Edom as we come to the end of Obadiah? He comes in judgment on some of them. But on some of them, he comes like Jonah. And now, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, and if you want to know what God has to say about people who stand and shake their fist at him and what he's willing to do to buy them back, you have to hear what God says to Jonah. So you'll have to come back next week because we're not going to do that anymore. Here's our commission from this text. There are two parts to the commission. This is a story of God buying back people who've committed adultery, who've committed idolatry, who've sinned against him, and who deserve death. And God does that in the story of the whole Bible, most clearly and completely in the New Testament. And so the, the Gospel of Mark says this is the story of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So our commission this morning is going to come. You're going to have one of two options, depending on your answer to this question. Do you know the redeeming love of Jesus Christ? Do you know the redeeming love of Jesus Christ? If your answer is no or not yet, then this is your commission. Romans chapter 3 clearly tells us exactly how God redeems us from our sin, how he buys us from death to life. It says this, Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, because there's no distinction. All have fallen short. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. That's your commission. Would you please talk with us more about that? Anyone who regularly attends Grace Covenant is ready and equipped to talk to you about what Romans 3 says. Grab some coffee, let's open up the Bible, let's see what Romans has to say about the redeeming love of God that is yours in Christ. And if your answer to the question, do you know the redeeming love of Jesus Christ, is yes, then this is your commission. Each week in our service, we have confession where we admit that we've returned over and over to sin. We've committed idolatry, adultery, right? And often it's the same kind of sin over and over again, and you know what it is. So it seems to me to be a fitting response to the redeeming love of God in the book of 12 to confess and repent from our sin, our own idolatry, that is like adultery and covenant breaking. God says in Hosea 2 what's on the front of your bulletin. This is what he's doing for you in Christ. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in chesed and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. This is your inheritance in Christ. 
confess and repent, and God is faithful and just and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness because of Christ. So confess to a brother or sister, repent, and now walk this week in the new life you have in Christ. Enjoy his redeeming love for his people, that the words of your lips and the meditations of your hearts would be pleasing in his sight, would be echoing back the, you're my people, with a life that says, you're my God. That's your commission. Know God's redeeming love in Christ if you do not yet. Live God's redeeming love in Christ each day this week. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have called us from adultery to faithfulness by faith in Christ. We pray that you would take this text and help us to respond to your redeeming love by faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then by life in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.